0: Hello, Antioch family. How are you? So good to see you all. It's so good to see faces around. We're the anchor holding down the fort until everybody else can come back. Way to go. Um, Please take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. It's easy to find. Go all the way to the last book in the Bible. Take one book left, and you'll find the small, short letter of Jude. Also, take out something to write with and some notes, because we're a Bible-believing, note-taking church. But always come expectant that God is going to have something for us to remember and to write down and to carry forward in our lives. When you're there, tell me you're there. there. You're there? Good. The letter of Jude is one of the shortest letters in the Bible one chapter, 25 verses. It is unanimously consensus that Jude is the most neglected book in the New Testament. In fact, I was listening or checking into one of the most prolific teachers of our time, travels all over the world, and it took him over 13 years to get to do his first sermon on Jude, and then he said he thinks it was another decade before he returned to that book. We are bucking that trend, and we are going in to do three weeks on the book of Jude, and we're excited about Jude. Why are we excited about Jude? It's because we believe fully that God, as we prayed through the content of what this last series is about going through our Bible, understanding our Bible, we feel certain that God gave us the books of the Bible. He said to do Luke, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, 2nd Timothy, and Jude. And we, I don't know about you, but I believe he has confirmed those books so far in a big, big way. So we approach Jude with equal excitement and say, this is going to be amazing to see what God has for us in this letter. This letter does need some explanation and content before we just dive in. Who is Jude and why is his letter in the Bible? Well, in the very first uh, verse, Jude identifies himself as the brother of James. James is the writer of the book of James and was a half-brother of Jesus. So that means, like James, Jude was a half-brother of Jesus. Although Jude wrote this letter in a very personal way, it seems very likely from the content and the way that he wrote that he viewed that what he was about to write was so important that it needed to be circulated throughout all of the churches. Although Jude wrote it in a personal way, he wanted to make sure that all the churches read this important contents. Some see the main purpose of this letter as protecting against false teachers, some see the main letter, of purpose of this letter is to guard our behavior. Some see it is to urge us to stay in the love of God. Which view are we going to take today as we go through Jude? Yes. Yes. We see all three of encouragements and admonishments covered in this small but really packed full letter. We will be going over parts of this letter for the next three weeks, so for now... I want you to take those notes and pens that I just told you to pick up and just set them down for a moment and just listen. Because first thing I want to do is just give an overview of the letter before we dive in. So, Jude starts with a warm and loving greeting and a statement of authority as the brother of James and having a direct connection to Jesus. Standard Jewish greetings always included grace and peace. Jude's, Jude's greeting includes mercy peace, and love. Interestingly, only Jude out of all of the New Testament writers included the greeting of love in his letter. While Jude intended to write about salvation, he wanted to write about all the good news about salvation. He just couldn't. His language shows an urgency. It shows an urgency. I wanted to write and just tell you about the good news of salvation, but I couldn't. When I observed everything that was going on, I had to write a different letter. And the letter that Jude is writing about, this letter, it's about contending for the faith. I had to write you and tell you believers, contend for this faith. This is not a plea to come to faith. This is a plea to contend and fight for what we already believe. Jude then goes on to tell why he felt that this letter is so necessary. It's because some have crept in, they've snuck in, and they're undermining this incredibly valuable faith that we've been entrusted with. And Jude calls out these dangerous intruders who are whittling away at the faith, and then he uses a series of Bible stories, some from inside the Bible, actually, and some from outside the Bible sources, to illustrate their rebellion, their danger, their failure, and eventually what will happen with them in their destruction. First, Jude describes these creepers' rebellion with three illustrations. First the Israelites' rebellion against God in the wilderness. The second is that he takes it about fallen angels and rebellious angels, which is taken actually from the book of Enoch. That's not a book of the Bible, but it was a trusted piece of literature that was read in their time and trusted by the Jews of the day. And last, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah to illustrate the rampant sexual immorality these creepers were advocating inside the body of Christ. Jude uses these examples to make his point. When we leave the truth, when we leave God, the result is always destruction. Destruction for our own lives, and we will carry destruction elsewhere to others as well. Jude says of these invaders, they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives some powerful illustrations of the sovereignty of God over us, over the world, over angels, and over Satan. And Jude says that these teachers, they rely on human instinct and human reasoning. And Jude illustrates the judgments that will follow these teachers by referring to biblical judgments of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. All these teachers, teachers who ended up following their own and then leading others away from God along with them. Jude says these false teachers will be known by their fruit of their lives, and he says they will be like hidden reeves or twice-dead trees. And he gives us four other illustrations for how they will lead others into chaos and cause chaos all around them. Jude reminds us that we have been warned by the disciples that people like this would come and try to infect the faith. Jesus himself said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then Jude returns back to us and says, But you, but you, the faithful, turns back to us and gives us instructions. You must contend for the faith. And by contending well, we will uphold the faith and literally snatch people out of the fire. And Jude ends with what is acknowledged as one of the most beautiful benedictions, doxologies in all of the scriptures. And that's the overview of the most neglected book in the New Testament. (laughs) So then, now, we're going to go and dive in and take some of its treasures. So now, can you take back out your notes and pens and your things to take notes with as we dive into this? And once again, we will see in the letter of Jude, the three, themes, the three themes that we believe are revealed throughout the scriptures. Jesus is king, your life matters, and your life is short. Now, as we noted, Jude set out to write a different letter. But when he sees the wolves, I'm borrowing Jesus' term for these teachers, Among the sheep, he writes a great passion to all the followers of Jesus, and he says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. This term, contend, it's a military or a sports term. It carries incredible urgency. It means with all that you have, defend this great faith. And a major theme of covering this entire letter is this contending for this incredibly valuable faith that we've been entrusted with. Certainly this admonition and encouragement is needed in the body of Christ today. When COVID first broke out, Linda came to me, my wife came to me and she said, we're going to need to put a treadmill down in the basement. I of course said, that is going to be a waste of money This silly thing will be over in two weeks and we'll be back in the gym. That was in February. (laughs) When will I listen to just say yes, dear, and go buy the treadmill? So I got the treadmill, and I learned a lot on my treadmill while I watched YouTube. I've always watched content, but I've never watched the rebuttals to content. But on my treadmill, I saw that we are contending against many, many voices For our faith. And by contending against those voices is one of the main reasons for Jude's letter and Jude's confirmation. And this confirmation, Jesus is king. We will see even in Jude's letter that he returns to that theme that we believe writes itself all through the scriptures. Jesus is king. It is very clear among these different and often confusing voices that we are going to have to guard the king. And that's the title for the message this week, Guard the King. I'm going to break these voices into three categories. I'm going to call the first category the unconvinced. I chose that term because it's more hopeful than some of the other choices that we have. These are people that are plainly state that they do not believe what, Christ, what Christians believe. They are upfront about it. They are sometimes vocal about it. Sometimes they're even antagonistic about it. But what they don't do is to pretend to be anything else. They are very upfront with their antagonism to the faith or their disbelief. They just don't believe. I'm not going to spend a lot of time defining that category because it's pretty self-explanatory. But the second category I'm going to call wolves, borrowing the term from Jesus. And this seems to be what Jude was most referring to in his letter, in in his time. This category of false teacher leads to the degrading of the faith in the people and all kinds of immoral and weird behavior. False teaching lead always and leading to immoral behavior will always try to creep into the faith. It has throughout history. The, unconvincing, the unconvinced are fairly obvious. The wolves are way more difficult to identify. Look back at Jesus' warning. He says wolves among the sheep. Wolves are very different than sheep and very easy to identify compared to a sheep. But Jesus says they will be dressed up to look like sheep. These wolves, they're not in the truth, but they often run very close to the truth. There are those that sound good at the start. Their answers and their philosophies can also seem to make a lot of sense. And their lifestyles and philosophies can be very attractive at the beginning. And Jude says, we must guard. We must be ready to stand and with all that we have, guard against and contend with these wolves. But if they look like sheep, how will we know them? it's most likely that Jude was contending what was called Gnosticism, a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a big problem for the early church. Gnosticism took a lot of different forms, but in general, it was the belief that the material was totally separate from the spiritual. Your physical body had nothing to do with your spiritual body. And so this separation of Body and soul, this separation of man from God, of our lives on earth and from heaven, led to all kinds of strange behavior. The Gnosticism was lived out somewhere in between two extremes. This separation of your physical from the the material from the uh, spiritual would be lived out between one of two extremes. One extreme was that some of the Gnostics would literally starve themselves, torture themselves, and beat themselves. Because they believed that the body was so evil it had to be controlled, manipulated, and even destroyed. The other extreme was to use the separation excuse, and this is probably what Jude was dealing with, to do anything you wanted. This is what was playing out in Jude's day. And it played out in the way that it usually does rampant sexual sin, immorality, and totally self centered lives with no care about others, no care about the world, and no care about anyone else in it. Your physical body, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care what you do here. Heaven is the only thing that matters. Your soul is all that God cares about. So you can do anything you want with this physical body. It means nothing. Certainly, forms of this philosophy about the separation of physical and the spiritual exist in our world today. It sounds like these wolves would be really easily detected, but it's not always the case. The behavior was out there, but the teachers claimed in Jude's day. The, te- the behavior was wild, but the teachers, they all claimed to be from God. They, in fact, justified that their behavior and their theology was from God. And even quoted scriptures. And we want to respond well, all we have to do is know the scriptures. And we just need to know the Bible and know the verses, and that will be the difference maker. But I have to tell you, there are people creeping into the faith, people who are wolves among the sheep, who are coming at Bible believing Christians with the Bible. How do we contend for the faith with them? Now, what I'm about to say is easily misunderstood, so please listen carefully. (laughs) Sometimes the battle will go further than just Bible verses. Sometimes the battle will go further than just Bible verses. Did I just say that the word of God is not always enough? No. I am saying the words of the Bible are not always enough. But the scriptures are more than just words. Let me give you an example from the Bible itself. Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Satan comes to him and, perf- and quotes perfectly Psalm 91. Jesus answers, "On the other hand, and perfectly quotes Deuteronomy 6:16. What made the difference? Jesus' connection with God through the Spirit of God. Verse 19, Jude confirms this need for the Spirit of God. He says of these teachers, these are the ones who cause divisions. They are worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. These wolves, these ones that are quoting Scripture and are claiming to be godly, they are void of the Spirit. The Bible is not just memorizing the textbook. That's just knowledge. The word is to be an encounter with us, with the living, active, spiritual God. Words are not enough, but the word is always enough. See the difference? Just words, not enough. The word, always enough, because the word is truth and spirit. And we must approach with both. We will talk about that more in the coming weeks, but for now, the distinction with these wolves is that although they may have the knowledge, they are void of the Spirit. There's still, there's still one other category of contention that we have to deal with. It's not one that Jude was dealing with in his day, but it is definitely detracting and distracting from the faith. Again, this is sensitive, but we must deal with it in order to contend for our faith well in our day. The third category is family. It's family. There are churches, movements, ministries, and Jesus followers attacking other churches, movements, ministry, and Jesus followers. I'm not talking about dialogue. I'm not talking about real lively debate. I'm talking about standing out in the public square of Facebook, Instagram, and whatever media we have and crying, Wolf! 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 against another brother or sister in Christ. Before COVID, I had only listened to content. I never listened to the rebuttals or the attacks. Well, on my treadmill, I couldn't help but see them. And so I saw them come up and I decided I wanted to click on and find out who are these people that are being called wolves, heretics, by Jesus followers. You know who they were? Hillsong, Bethel and some of the best preachers that I, and have dramatically impacted my life. And I thought, what is going on? We can have dialogue, but heretic, dangerous, destroyer. For every attack on a teacher, listen to this, for every attack on a teacher or a ministry from outside the church, I'll bet you I can find five to 10 from inside the church. I honestly had the thought that Satan was sitting back and going, I don't have to do a thing. The unity that Jesus said would confirm that he's the son of God, they're destroying it all without me. How do we contend for the faith with the unconvinced, the wolves, and brothers and sisters? How do we contend for the faith with two very real adversaries and family? This can be discouraging confusing, overwhelming. Who can contend with this? Who is knowledgeable enough in the scriptures to handle all these arguments? Who knows church history well enough to deal with all the questions that come up? Who is educated enough to make these arguments on doctrine? Who is equipped, knowledgeable, strong enough to discern what to do with all these disagreements and all of these loud voices? Who can do this? And the scriptures are really clear. I can. And if you have the spirit of God and know Jesus, so can you. Praise God, I can and so can you if you have Jesus and you have the spirit of God. Because the scriptures make it really, really clear that the answer is simple, straightforward, and it's invincible. In all instances, in all situations, whether unconvinced, wolves or whether or not they're family, the Bible's clear. Guard the king. Just guard the king. And we can all do that. There's a lot in Jude's letter that we will go back over in the next two weeks, but Jude's overarching answer, and the answer is to covering over all of his other guidance, is that if you're going to contend for the faith, the first and foremost thing is to guard the king. Jude Guarding the king is found in his passionate opening in verse 4. He says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out of his condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jude, contending and guarding the king, is found in in his closing, his beautiful doxology in verse 24 and 25. Now to him, referring to King Jesus, bunch of offenses. He mentions a bunch of punishments, and he gives a bunch of illustrations for the measures out what will, but he always, always measures the offenders and the offense against their position and their belief for Jesus. He takes everything back to what do they believe about the king? What is their position on? What is their stance for? And what is their belief in King Jesus? guard the king. Jude starts with Jesus. Those teachers, they corrupt and deny the lordship of Jesus. And then he ends with Jesus. To him, King Jesus, be the one to keep us from stumbling, usher us into glory, and who holds us into dominion and majesty forever and ever. Amen. For Jude, everything comes back to what do these teachers feel, believe, and teach about Jesus. That's guarding the king. And we must do the same. We must always begin and end with, with anybody, what do you say about King Jesus? What do you believe about King Jesus? Who is King Jesus to you? You see, I believe that in every category of all of these conflicting voices, what has been lost is the supremacy of our King. In every category. With the unconvinced, they deny the king. I remember when I was first exploring, giving my life to Jesus, and I heard a man make this statement, "If you're going to explain away Christianity, you have to be able to explain away Jesus." And I knew he was right. I've had discussion after discussion after discussion with the unconvinced. And they want to talk about evolution. And they want to talk about hell. And they want to talk about sexual revolution. And they want to talk about sexual definition. They want to talk about cultural relevance. I am most willing to have all of those discussions. But they are only a precursor. They are only a boundary to what will eventually come up. And that is who is Jesus. Everything ends back at Jesus. For someone to deny the faith, they must be able to explain away the person teaching life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For someone to stay comfortable in their denial, they have to be able to explain away Jesus. And you know what? They can't. They can't. Because you can't explain away a reality. And the reality is Jesus is King. Wolves, they try to de- redefine the king. This category is a little bit more devious, a little bit more deceptive, and a little bit more dangerous. Wolves are dangerous and must be dealt with with strength of faith. Wolves will often run very close to the truth, and they're often very knowledgeable and humanly capable. They can find, most often, do something and do something very, very inviting. This is because the wolves, that they, they will sound very inviting because wolves actually are helpers of the enemy and therefore supported by the enemy. But again, all you need to discern wolves is to deal with wolves and guard the king. Jesus said of Satan, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Satan, enemies, evil, cannot stand in the truth. They can't. If you're wondering where someone is coming from or where a teacher stands, you measure that person and that teaching against the truth. There is nothing more true, more certain, more undebatable about our faith except the kingship more than the kingship of Jesus. And that's why you always return to guard the king. Just keep asking this teacher, who is Jesus to you? If they are a wolf, listen to this, if they are a wolf, they will eventually have to say something that starts to detract from the full person and kingship of Jesus Christ. Because if they fully affirm who Jesus is as king, they are actually affirming the one who destroys lies. Stay with the King. And eventually, a wolf will have to reveal himself. If you're wondering about a false teacher or teaching, guard the king. What about brothers and sisters in the faith? I think here, the danger, what about family, is that sometimes we've lost the supremacy of the king in our faith, even in our family. Sadly, it seems that we in the family of Jesus can allow lesser issues to detract and distract from our king. I've observed, listened, and even participated in debates on common disagreements inside our faith. Things like Arminians versus Calvinism. That's the role of free will. Things like predestination. Things like the role of women in the church. The dispensation of the gifts and do they still exist. Eschatology view and how end times will look. The different beliefs on judgment in hell. Sexuality and rewards in heaven. How much kingdom is available on the earth. All living dialogues inside the body of believers. Is right doctrine important? Absolutely. Absolutely. We as a family must have dialogue around important issues and wrestle vigorously for understanding within biblical context. But here's the thing. The Bible is God's word. It is talking about the mysteries of God And we must humbly accept that we are still human beings in our journey of fully understanding those mysteries of God and fully interpreting the truth and the revelation. We can and must stand on the Bible as always right and always true, but we must approach some of the interpretations with gentleness, grace, and humility. I want to try and insert a practical guideline that has helped me with family members. We Christians often only have two categories in our discussions. We listen to somebody, and they are either biblical or they are unbiblical. Now, just because what that comes to mean is that they're biblical if they agree with my interpretation. If they don't agree with my interpretation or what I've been taught, then they're unbiblical. Can I suggest that the family needs a third category? I have had conversations with Christians, with people that are not biblical. And honestly, most of the time, they won't be offended if I say that's not a biblical argument. Most of the people, even some Christians that have lost the authority of scripture, they have come with other measurements that they have come to value even higher than the Bible. And so if I'm in that dialogue and I'm talking to them and I say, you know, that argument's not biblical, they're probably okay with that. But likewise, I have sat with Jesus loving people with all their heart and listened to their Bible interpretations and listened. And at the end, I have disagreed. But what I cannot say to, of that brother and sister is that they are unbiblical. There is a third category. I don't agree, but I can't say you're unbiblical because your, your arguments are all in biblical context. I want to suggest that body, that our body, our family, needs that third category. And I know that makes, people, excuse me, that makes people uncomfortable, but it is the truth. Here are a few facts within Bible-believing churches, within biblical boundaries that are different interpretations of the end times of free will, heaven and hell, role of women, and role of gifts. That's just a fact. They exist and are different inside the church. Now, as soon as I say that, someone begins and because we each have our own biblical views and we start to say, yeah, I know, but, but my biblical view is the right biblical view. I'm the rightest biblical view. And with that, the cries of wolf start. By urging this more grace-filled dialogue with family members of Jesus, some will say, Wor- "Worried, you're gonna miss some of the wolves. To that, I say, no, we won't. If we guard Jesus, the wolves will reveal themselves eventually. If we stand on King Jesus and open to be a more grace-filled, humble, biblical dialogue, some others are going to say, you don't stand for anything. Not true. We stand for everything. We will stand and have strong dialogue for our stances on the scriptures, but we will die for our King. Look at all that comes under guarding the king. Truth is revealed and guarded in the king. Culture cannot alter the king. Politics does not have any authority over the king. Enlightenment does not redefine the king. Life, provision, hope, purpose, power, healing, peace, rest, all by the authority of the king. When we stand for the king, when we guard the king, we're standing for everything. Do we have to be careful of false teaching? Yes, the king said so. Do we have to be careful of tradition and religion? Yes, the king said so. How will we know which is the difference the king will tell us? This is why throughout the scriptures we're urged to guard the king. Because it is the person of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the role of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the kingship of Jesus that is beyond debate. In all cases, whether with unconvinced wolves or family, if we guard the kingship of Jesus, we will contend for the faith well. And that's what we're charged to do. I took the title from the game of chess. The chess is built around guarding the king. I think it's interesting that in the game of chess, the king has very few moves that it can make. It's the bishops, the rooks, they can go the span of the board. The queen, the knights, all can outmove the king. But the game is built on protecting the king. That's what the whole game is guarding the king. From this, you could take that the king needs to be guarded because he's weak. But the king is not weak. We guard the king because every other piece has its purpose, meaning, and life in the king. If someone can figure out how to take the king on the very first move, the game is over and everything else crumbles. We guard the king because it's under the king that all of us have all our definition, worth, meaning, purpose, and power. Let's stand. Let's stand together.